I think the government is withholding information to protect Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland and her ongoing inappropriate relationship with the World Economic Forum. It's November 18th, 2022. I'm Sheila Gunn-Reed, but you are watching The Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. I saw something breeze across my desk the other day. It was an order paper question posed by conservative MP Leslin Lewis. Now, for those of you who don't know, an order paper question is an important tool that the opposition can use to actually get answers in the House of Commons instead of the insufferable theatrics of question period where everybody involved just thumps their chest and offers partisan talking points instead of facts, data, and details. So Lewis used this important tool to compel the government to provide her information on how many communications the Deputy Prime Minister Christa Freeland has had with the World Economic Forum because Freeland has what I would describe as a conflict of interest here. Freeland sits on the World Economic Forum's Board of Trustees. So who does she really work for? The World Economic Forum or Canadians? And what does Freeland do when those interests compete? What side does she choose? You know what? I think we all know the answer to that, don't we? But I found this order paper response very interesting, actually quite unbelievable. And I checked my theory about believability for myself. I'll show you that in a second. First, I want to show you why I went about checking my theory. According to the documents returned by the finance ministry and Christia Freeland's office, She's only had four communications with the World Economic Forum in over three years. How is it possible that someone who sits on the board of directors at the World Economic Forum would only have four communications? And that includes letters and phone calls in nearly four years since we're already at the end of 2022. Now, according to the documents returned in that response to the order paper, the first communication between Freeland and the World Economic Forum after 2019 took place on January 8th, 2021, you tell me if that's believable. But anyway, it was a phone call inviting Freeland to speak at the World Economic Forum leadership panel just two and a half weeks later. Then, next communication, it was a letter in and around November 1st, 2021, thanking Freeland for participating in the Board of Trustees meeting and then inviting her to participate in the World Economic Forum in 2022 and alerting Ottawa that the president of the World Economic Forum, Borga Brende, would be visiting Ottawa in early December 2021. Then, January 5th, 2022, it was a letter inviting Freeland to a high-level leadership panel at the 2022 virtual World Economic Forum meetings. After that, we see a February 14th, 2022 invitation to a rescheduled World Economic Forum in May 2022 and a letter of invitation to the Board of Trustees meeting. For communications, just four in all, including letters and phone calls in nearly four years, though Freeland sits on the board of trustees at the World Economic Forum, color me skeptical. And I was right to be skeptical because as it turns out just this week, I got documents back on the very same issue. What a dink! I started comparing what Freeland represented to the House of Commons as her communications with the World Economic Forum versus 
what her office gave me, and I've got one glaring difference. Now, my access to information request was submitted in January, so I've been waiting 11 months for these documents, but that also means I won't have that February communication in my records. I just want to get that out of the way. But I went through and I started cross-referencing, matching everything up. Now, I know there are communications from January 8th, 2021, about speaking at a World Economic Forum leadership panel. Unfortunately, we do know that it was a phone call, so there aren't any official records of it. I've got communications from November 2021, inviting Freeland to participate in the Board of Trustees meeting. Perfect. Sounds great. I've got January 5th, 2022 communications about participating in a high-level panel at the Virtual World Economic Forum. It's signed by Klaus Schwab personally and has a very informal greeting, calling Freeland by her first name and not her role as the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. It's pretty darn cozy. But I've got something else that Freeland didn't tell the House of Commons about. I've got December 18th communications from a redacted person at the World Economic Forum who is once calling Freeland by her friendly first name. It's an email about a Young Global Leaders 2020 engagement survey that Freeland needed to fill out. Now, I wonder why they redacted the sender's name. And I wonder why they didn't report this as a communications record to the House of Commons. And I wonder why they didn't think I would cross-reference. They must be very used to lazy store-bought journalists just going along with the government lines instead of being skeptical and fact-checking like journalists used to do. And I wonder why they think any of us believe that in four years, Freeland has only had four communications with the World Economic Forum, though she's Canada's finance minister and she sits on the board of trustees. But what I don't have to wonder is what the liberals think about these sorts of things when conservatives do it through oversight or carelessness or even through attempts to hide information from the House of Commons. The Liberals think it's a firing offence. In fact, Justin Trudeau himself thinks it's a firing offence. When former Conservative MP Bev Oda was accused of misleading Parliament after claiming not to know who altered an international grant document for a Canadian aid group, the Liberals ran a petition, pushed by Justin Trudeau himself, to fire Bev Oda from Cabinet. She was, however, eventually fired over a $16 orange juice scandal. My, how things have changed. Imagine the howls from the liberal benches if a conservative government wasn't producing the documents the liberals asked for. But as the old saying goes, if not for double standards, the liberals wouldn't have any standards at all. Stay with us. Mark Morano from Climate Depot joins us after the break. all have to work together, corporations, of course governments, civil society, to address the big issues in our world. Let me just make four remarks related to generating growth through innovation. First, of course, if you look at all the challenges, we can speak about the multi crisis, an economic, a political, a social, an ecological, an institutional crisis. But actually, what we have to confront is a deep, systemic, and structural restructuring of our world. 
and this will take some time. And the world will look differently after we have gone through this transition process. Politically, the driving forces for this political transformation, of course, is the transition into a multipolar world, which has a tendency to make our world much more fragmented. And for these reasons, events like this one, the G20, and so on, are the very important connectors to avoid a too great segmentation, I would say, blockization instead of globalization of our world. Well, that is the head of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, and pardon the confused look on my face because I don't understand why he's being treated on par with the elected leaders that are attending the G20, what they're cutesily calling the B20 because it was held in Bali. But he... He made some comments there about restructuring. I guess I guess calling it uh, the Great Reset is comes with some stigma these days. But I wanted to bring somebody onto the show today who is a careful watcher of the World Economic Forum and how it intersects with the United Nations climate change policies. So joining me now from Climate Depot is Mark Morano, and it looks beautiful where Mark is. Obviously, <laughs> I've paid too much or too much carbon tax because it's very cold here, and I guess that means it's working. Uh, Mark, I wanted to have you on the show because you're recently back from Sharm El Sheikh, Egypt, um, what you call Sharm El Shakedown, very clever. Um, and, you know, as I said, you're a very careful watcher of how these two horrible control freak organizations intersect. And you really called the latest UN climate change conference sort of the World Economic Forum climate change conference. Yes. Well, first of all, two things on that G20 summit. You're absolutely right. I'm unaware of any previous summit where you had the leaders of France, Canada, the United States and the leaders of the World Economic Forum speaking. That was like he's now on the level of a head of state. The World Economic Forum is now on the level of a country. Uh, and not only that, but one of the leading countries, one of the most developed countries based based on its membership in the G20. So he's up there calling for this radical transformation, doing his thing. And of course, all the leaders are bowing. The question is, he was, they were also at the United Nations summit in Egypt. There was John Kerry at a World Economic Forum event where John Kerry openly said, we're gonna use the COVID template in order to, the same way we did to fight climate change. And they're borrowing from that. And this is where, of course, the Great Reset was activated by the COVID lockdowns beginning in March of 2020. This is what these decades-long plans by these uh, people from everything going back to the New World Order, the Great Reset, now they were activated because they had the world just where they wanted them, in a crisis, emergency powers, crushing a democracy. Uh, and yes, this was the summit where I call it the Great Reset Summit because you had the World Health Organization there and their message couldn't have been clearer. Climate is the greatest health threat. They've already declared it the greatest health threat of the 21st century. And they believe that if climate is left unchecked, you will get more COVID-like viruses. So if you don't support the net zero Green New Deal UN climate agenda, you are a grandma killer because that's gonna lead to more runaway viruses. And of course the World Economic Forum 
uh, was there. And the biggest thing to come out of this was Al Gore and Google joined forces to come up with the Climate Trace Initiative, which is going to monitor 70 plus thousand individual CO2 emitters. We as humans inhale oxygen, exhale CO2. This is going to go after farms, businesses, factories, you name it. And this is a new Chinese social credit system. And we have the, a partnership now between international organizations, government and these uh, big corporations. You know, you took the words right out of my mouth as you were saying that. I, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, that just sounds like carbon social credit. And you said exactly that. We also heard John Kerry, the climate czar, saying that the green the green reset is going to be rolled out like the COVID vaccine. We noticed in the final sort of death throes of the pandemic scare that they moved into using this language now of climate change being a health issue. You have all these climate doctors saying the exact same things and this strange push for net zero health care. And I just wonder where it ends. Do we start seeing people now as carbon budgets instead of patients because they're seeing, you know, how uh, they're seeing climate change as a major health scare now? Well, it's the same dehumanization that occurred during COVID. You became a disease vector, every human. You needed to be masked, locked up, curfewed, put away. Uh, and if you didn't follow every order, you needed to be denied medical treatment and access to your own money. I mean, this is that's the template. So now with climate, they're going to do the same thing. And you have MasterCard in the UN last year announced their partnership for these climate uh, carbon footprint monitoring credit card. In other words, if you spend money, that's going to monitor it. If you're buying meat, gas, putting your thermostat too high, spending money on energy bills, then whammo, it cuts off your ability to spend once you hit your carbon max. World Economic Forum praised this credit card. Visa this year is joining it. And now you have a study in the journal Nature calling for individual carbon footprint monitors. The World Economic Forum is developing an app that's going to monitor carbon footprints as well for people. This is treating us all as little disease vector slash planet killers who need to be manu who need to be managed down to the lowest level of our thermostats, whether we can put meat in our mouth, what kind of cars we can drive, what kind of appliances we can have, when we can travel. The other scary thing to come out of this same thing, UN G20, was the G20 agreement on the vaccine mandates, allowing the World Health Organization to tell us about our freedom of movement. We can travel if have we met all the Bill Gates funded scientists at the WHO's criteria for the COVID vaccines? And this is really frightening stuff. They couldn't get a pandemic treaty in, so they're gonna, they're gonna try an end around, just like they couldn't get the Green New Deal in the US passed, but they did an end around through every agency, became a climate agency, ESG, banking, and executive orders. You know, it's really chilling because a lot of the technologies, to use back, a lack of a better phrase, that were developed to track our movements during COVID um, both clandestine and openly. Uh, it's my concern that they will be used now to track our movements because of our climate footprint. For example, it was discovered by us, actually, um, that during the pandemic, the Canadian government was tracking cell phone users' locations to determine how far they had gone away from their home to see if they were going yeah. to visit elderly parents at the nursing home or if they were going to other people's homes during Christmas when they banned us from having Christmas. And they did it behind closed doors. The only way we found out is because we located a contract where they were looking to renew the contracts with the cell phone companies to to track Canadians. 
And they did it so quickly and so easily using COVID. And that's just sort of a regional scare, I guess, uh, at this point. But they tell me that the climate change scare is a, is a global catastrophe. And I worry about how these technologies that were developed for COVID will be implemented to oppress people because of climate change. Yeah, I detail in my book, The Great Reset, one of the apps for COVID track and trace was developed from the climate activists uh, that worked with Al Gore and the World Economic Forum. It's all related. And the same thing you mentioned in Canada happened in Australia. You had the COVID tracking. If you went to a grocery store and you were within six feet of someone who the next day tested positive for COVID, you would have armed government agents at your door forcibly committing you to a relocation camp for eight to 10 or 12 days, whatever it is, against your will in order for public safety to be met. And this is, I mean, I have a weather app, uh, Sheila, on my phone today. It said the temperature will be, I guess it's going to go down to like in the teens. And it said, not a good day for outdoor sports, consider canceling. It's like suddenly my weather app sounds like an authoritarian public health official. It's too cold to play. Like, like we tell us the temperature, we can figure out what we can and can't do. But now you have a phone weather app telling you to cancel outdoor sporting events because it's too cold. It's creepy stuff that's happening and it's, it's increasing happening and they've been unbridled since COVID lockdowns. They're just unleashed. The excitement of the authoritarian state is just unleashed since March of 2020. And I think we've normalized the spending on these things. I mean, governments made money rain from the sky like manna over yeah. the course of the pandemic because it was a public health crisis. Now we've relabeled climate change as a public health crisis. And I think we've normalized the fact that you could just throw money at whatever you've labeled a crisis and it's going to be just fine. And that's very concerning considering, you know, I was poking around on Climate Depot as I tend to do every single day. And a lot of the talk out of Sharmel Sheikh was how my comfortable SUV here in the Western world is causing hurricanes and typhoons in the developing world and so I must be made to pay regardless of the scientific connection and with the template of COVID I think it's going to be easier than ever for governments to just transfer wealth to the developing world for it used to be because of COVID now it's climate change. Again. Yeah, a couple things. This is happening. They're able to do this because of emergency powers. In the U.S., we're still living under the 9-11 terrorism uh, emergency declaration, which led to the Patriot Act, which led to the domestic surveillance state that we're now living under. They were able to call angry parents at school board meetings over COVID theater mask mandates, domestic terrorists now. And so what's happened here is because of this COVID emergency, and the COVID emergency we're still living under, they want to declare a climate emergency. Everything that they want to do now, they realize they don't need no stinking democracy. And here's how it works. We had Justin Trudeau praising China's basic dictatorship. You had Christina Figueres praising China's one-party rule. You had the New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. You had Obama administration officials. We finally achieved what COVID lockdowns, finally achieved one-party authoritarian rule based on China in the once free West. That's how they're able to do this. We didn't vote to have our energy collapse. We were actually told of a green utopia that was going to happen that we'd never have to worry about energy shortages because solar and wind were cheaper and plentiful and, and homegrown. 
So we, have, we, we didn't vote to have our energy collapse. We didn't vote to have transportation shortages, which we're getting with car bans. We didn't vote to have food shortages, which we're getting with net zero nitrogen bans on high yield agriculture and killing meat. We didn't vote to have our free, our, our spe- our freedom of speech uh, destroyed through big tech censorship, which is actually government censorship. And we didn't vote to have our the value of our dollar destroyed through hyperinflation, debt spending and printing of money, but it's all happening. We didn't vote for lockdowns. We didn't vote for school closures. We didn't vote for mask mandates. It all happened anyway through executive order, through emergency powers. And that is why they are so confident they can keep this party rolling. In the US, we had a failed vote to get rid of the COVID emergency declaration. Democrats do not want to give it up. No politician wants to give that up. They can at a moment's notice do whatever they want. In, in the case of the Biden, they can make renters not have to pay landlords. They can make uh, mask mandates, vax mandates. They can do anything they want at the drop of a hat. They don't want to give up that power. Well, and Canada is just as bad right now. We have the Public Order Emergency Commission taking place in Ottawa to examine Justin Trudeau's role in invoking a wartime law, martial law, on people who simply protested against him. It's the kind of stuff that you would see in Venezuela, invoking martial law on peaceful anti-regime protesters. And regardless of the outcome of the Public Order Commission, there will be no real consequences for Justin Trudeau. Mark, I'm reliably informed that the West won the Cold War, but I'm not all that sure now with hindsight being 2020. No, and it's a great point. I mean, literally, this has been a slow erosion. But again, March 2020 was the game changer. It activated every authoritarian vision. We saw for decades, you know, you had the event 201, Rockefeller event, John Hopkins and Gates and World Economic Forum. They, they were giving us glimpses of the lockdowns and mask mandates and the shutting down of the Internet to stop misinformation. They were waiting for that moment of crisis. They struck in March 2020 and they're not letting go. And you're absolutely right. Freedoms that we'd fought world wars over to preserve were literally evaporated overnight during this COVID thing. And that's what the, that's ultimately, this is what the World Economic Forum, what the UN, what the World Health Organization, what leaders like Justin Trudeau want. They want to keep us safe is the way they're billing it. And they believe that we, the unwashed masses, if left to our own devices, would create a public health emergency by spreading deadly pathogens. We'd created a climate crisis by you know, using too much fossil fuels. We'd create you know, food shortages. So what happens is the government policy collapses all these industries, food, energy, transportation. And now we have calls to nationalize it all. And there's even some people saying, well, we told you so that you know, the coming food shortages, we warned you climate change would cause food shortages. It wasn't climate change. It was their policies designed for net zero that caused the food shortages. And now they want to nationalize industries in order to, to allegedly save them. This is insane. And the general, they're, they're brilliant because the general public generally goes along. They're, you're completely uninformed. I'd say only about 30% of the public is even aware of half of what we talked about today, Sheila. Definitely. And as a farmer, I see that every single day. Um, Farming has never been more productive and more efficient. And the only problem is that governments won't get out of our way. Mark, how do people support the work that you do and see the work that you do? Because you're some at Climate Depot and at CFACT, you guys are some of the most careful watchers of the globalist agenda to control our lives. So where can people find the work that you do or maybe even uh, buy your book? Well, you can go to climatedepot.com. 
I'm on Twitter at, at Climate Depot, and also the book is the, the Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown. I also wrote Green Fraud. Uh, you can order that on Amazon. You can order it uh, at cfac.org, and you can go to Climate Depot. There's links to buy that. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Mark, for your time. Thank you, Sheila. Stay with us. Your letters to Ezra, unimpressively read by me, up after the break. Letters, letters, letters. We get your letters because unlike the mainstream media, we actually care about what you think about the work that we do. And one of the best ways to get your letter or comment to us is to leave a comment on Rumble or even on the censorship platform of YouTube. Now, on David Menzies' interview with Franco Terrazano from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation regarding new Alberta Premier Daniel Smith fighting back against climate change. SG1, not me, by the way, not a pseudonym for Sheila, writes, seeing as Trudeau doesn't care about destroying the West, Albertans, and I mean real Albertans, should be grateful that we have people that are protecting our interests. Smith is winning my support more and more. You know, Daniel Smith is unflinching in the face of mainstream media criticism of her. She is actually going around the mainstream media just this week. She did an interview with Jordan Peterson, who called Alberta the Texas of Canada. I like to call us that too. But some of the most important thinkers in the Western world, the freedom-minded people like Jordan Peterson, see Daniel Smith for exactly what she is. And by speaking to people like Jordan Peterson, Daniel Smith is doing something that Donald Trump did in 2015 and 2016, and that is just going completely around the liars of the mainstream media. Dr. Blue Chip X writes, if she was here a year ago, Alberta would have thousands more doctors and nurses. A year late means many of those dismissed won't be returning. Now, Daniel Smith did say to our reporter Celine Gallus at the United Conservative Party AGM that she would welcome back anybody into her government, into the public sector that had been laid off because of vaccine mandates. However, just the sad reality of it is that those people have families and bills and jobs. And so the likelihood is that they have taken jobs elsewhere, thus leaving Alberta in need of frontline workers. Now, this week also in Alberta, Daniel Smith is doing something that is completely unheard of in Canada. And the, she's tackling what it means to have fully government-controlled, rationed health care in this country. She has fired the entire board of Alberta Health Services and replaced the board with one person, an administrator, saving all those salaries and doing something completely different. She also fired Dr. Dina Hinshaw, our chief medical officer of health, who was a mainstream media darling and replaced her with one person, just a doctor who isn't a celebrity, but actually someone who will examine the science of public health and do the right thing by Albertans and hopefully balance our civil liberties in the progress. And for this, Daniel Smith, our new premier, she's going to take a lot of slings and arrows. Now, I am excited to see what she does next, but it's also my job as a journalist to make sure that she keeps our promises 
to Albertans and the people who voted for her. Donna Scott writes, wish the premier of Ontario was more like her. Yeah, I heard that around the office today and stand up for the people. Danielle Smith is doing conservative things after she was elected by conservatives. Wouldn't it be great if the other conservative premiers in this country would do the same? It is my hope, however, that she acts as sort of a Ron DeSantis of the North, not just in her love of freedom, but in that she would be the first to do the right thing and make it safe for the others to follow. Ron DeSantis was the first to shirk off lockdowns and never go back. And it was his leadership that made it much easier for Texas to follow and South Dakota to follow and the other Republican governors to follow on the trail he blazed. And it's my hope that for other people living under conservative premiers in other parts of this country, that Daniel Smith blazes a trail for you too. Well, everybody, that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for Efron behind the board for being patient with me as I fill in for the big boss man. We hope to see you actually this weekend at in Whitby, Ontario. It's one of the reasons that I'm in the office here. It's Rebel News Live. You can still get tickets for tomorrow's event at rebelnewslive.com. But if you're not out here in the Toronto area, maybe you're in the land of the free in Alberta with me. We've got Rebel News Live in Calgary on Saturday, September 26th. And again, tickets, rebelnewslive.com. Hopefully we'll see you tomorrow at, in Whitby at Canada Christian College. Again, that's the show for tonight. And as Ezra always says, since it's his show, keep fighting for freedom. It's Mary Ugolini here with Rebel News, bringing you more reports from the World Health Summit 2022 that takes place yearly in Berlin, Germany. It's a three-day globalist conference that is now done in partnership with the World Health Organization, where health professionals and bureaucrats gather to rub shoulders with the elites pushing the global health agenda forward. The team of this year's World Health Summit is taking global health to a new level. It's sponsored heavily by the pharmaceutical lobby and its corporate consultants who appear to have special interests in manufacturing global health outcomes. We were on the scene for the full three days to get an insider's glimpse into this conference to see what exactly was being discussed when the cameras were off and what people within the health sector truly thought of the COVID-19 response. In the clips that I'm about to show you, a local Berlin ICU doctor shares his thoughts with my colleague Alexa Lavoie and myself. As always, these reports are only made possible through your generous support and donations at rebelwho.com. At that special website, you can also search all of our previous reports and there you can stay up to date with the reports as we continue to publish them. Here is that ICU doctor admitting that he knew the public health response would and has harmed the general public and especially our most prized future, the children. Because the kids are devastated. Yeah, they are absolutely. And everyone knows it. Like in the healthcare system, everyone knows it. Yeah? Like, uh, the, the, like the governmental choices didn't come out of the healthcare system, at least in Germany, not. <laughs> so everyone in the healthcare system apparently knows how the public health response has devastated children, but what are they doing about it? I'm going to be very frank. There's no politician in this country that's going to disagree with their chief medical officer 
uh, they just aren't going to do it. They might as well throw a rope around their neck and jump off a bridge. They're done. I thought that the government was continually listening to the experts and trusting them. At least that's what we are told here in Canada. Yet this doctor says that this response wasn't informed by the healthcare system at all. Listen to him elaborate on this. Politicians say doctors made those choices. I don't think so. I think it was like politics. Yeah. And and, and, and like how politics think is bigger numbers. Of course. Like they, they need to think for everyone. They extrapolate. Yeah. And they think like in terms of law and, and, and like they, they make the laws. So the they policy. think in terms of policy yeah. of like like more like Kant. Yeah. Like like the bigger laws everyone should be ruled by. And of course then they and in a politician way of thinking about reality, a lockdown is perfect. Absolutely makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. If you look at the data, it makes sense. As a doctor you always yeah need to but now I think like to be honest, you need a recovery plan yes. for children. Everything yes. else the one, number one thing we need to do is recover the children because they like they will also be like they are at the moment sick from for, for, from the things but they will also be like the grown-ups of the future yeah. so it's like you get two things at the price of one you make people healthy and you make future people healthy because you helped the children the children yeah and they need a serious recovery and we talk way too less about it. So when the lockdowns came, they were excluded. Excluded, yeah. exactly. Now, at least when we do the recovery plan, which I think we need for children, we should include them into finding solutions for them. There's no talk here about recovery, though. No. Or anything no. about a review. I was a bit disappointed for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you hear him say sick from the things? Sick from, from, from the things. He's insinuating that those miraculous injections and those novel drugs are responsible for it. But he agrees that it's disappointing there is no discussion about any sort of harms implemented by the COVID-19 response at this particular conference. That none of the wrongdoings are being discussed. And how can we even begin to recover from the far-reaching and implicating damage caused by lockdowns, indiscriminate masking, and coercive vaccine mandates as a whole in society? But especially how can we focus this recovery on what it's done to the children? The Irish Parliament recently heard from one of their policy advisors, Fiona Jennings, that children are still suffering COVID-related anxieties. The article says that parents were reporting children's anxieties about parents being safe constantly, social anxiety and health anxiety arising from the COVID message of keep safe and don't make others sick. She said there were also issues around obsessive compulsive behavior, such as excessive hand washing and use of sanitizers. Medical professionals know and arguably knew from the onset that this response was devastating an entire generation of impressionable children. And it's disgustingly shameful that many continue to stay silent as the future of our societal fabric hangs in the balance. While the ones that speak out are silenced, slandered, and fired. For Rebel News, I'm Tamara Ugolini.